Well, good morning. So glad that you're with us here today. I want to talk to you this morning about three things that God does to change your heart. Now, all of the honest people that I know will, in response to the question, is there anything about you that needs to change or to be better or to improve or maybe even be transformed? Every honest person I know says, yes, yes. I, I was talking to someone this week that was uh, in their 70s, and they were telling me about how they're learning and how they're growing and how they're changing and how they still need to change. So I'll just tell you who I'm talking to this morning. I'm only talking to the honest people, okay? So if you're not honest, you don't have to listen to anything that we have to say here this morning. No, I want to help you this morning. I want to help you find and discover uh, how it is that God changes you. I, I have, uh, in my try, trying to make sense of how the world is the way that it is with so much pain and hurt and just hateful, uh, I've kind of developed what I, I call it the dirt hurt cycle. I've talked to you about this before. I, I scratch it out on a yellow pad. It doesn't matter where you start. It doesn't matter if you start with the hurt or you start with the dirt. Uh, it's like this cycle that uh, we get into where either the pain of life causes us to seek out something that the scriptures would call sin, or sin causes us, when we commit it, causes us to feel hurt. And then we just get into this, this crazy cycle that we don't know how to get out of. And I want to talk to you this morning about how the things that God does in your heart help you to break the cycle. Now, we're in this series, and we're ending it today, and we're talking all about your heart. We've talked about forgiveness. We've talked about anger and apathy. We've talked about cultivating compassion. We've talked about how to handle pain. And here's what we've been trying to say, that the issues of life, they're not out there somewhere. The issues of life are in here. Now listen, if you listen to our culture and you listen to anybody, any pundit on the news about any subject, what they're going to tell you is, you know, the real issues in life, they're out there somewhere. They're those people or those officials or that company or that, that governmental system. The, the issues are out there. And what we're trying to say through this series is that's not actually accurate. It's not that there aren't issues. It's that the real issues of life are the things that you and I carry around with us. The real issues of life are right here. And so we have to figure out what it is that we're going to do about the things that are right here. One of my goals for myself, and I hope it's a goal that you have for you as well, is that you would have a good heart. I'm not trying to negate the fact that I, I want you to be a, uh, do good in life and, and, and have a great job and be good at what you do, but what would it be like if you were great at what you did, but you didn't ever have a good heart? I'm not saying it's an either or. I'm, I'm saying, can you make it one of the goals of your life to have a good heart? And we're going to talk about that today. How do you have a good heart and how God makes it possible? I want to invite you to stand with me. We read the scriptures together every week out of reverence uh, for God's word. We stand and I'm going to be reading from the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament. It'll be on the screen and you can follow along as I read aloud. This is God to us. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. Put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. 
And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that wonderful? I grew up hearing that. I grew up hearing that story. It's a, it's a possibility text. It's about you and I living a holy life. And, and it sounds so wonderful, but I, we, we sometimes uh, talk about this passage, these three verses here in Ezekiel, and miss the context and, and uh, that just a few verses later kind of messes it up a little bit. So I want you to read it out loud with me. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 31. Um, can you we'll put this on the screen for you here? Here we go. Read this out loud. Ready? Then you will remember your evil ways and wicked deeds... And you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I am not doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced of your conduct, people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We love the first half of that, and we don't so much love the second half of that. Because in the second half of of that passage there in Ezekiel, Ezekiel seems to be saying, listen, the reason you're struggling is it's, it's you. You're the reason that you're struggling. We don't like that. We don't like that. So I want to give you some background, and I want to help you understand what's happening here in this passage. And I want to give you uh, uh, two biblical categories, and those two biblical categories are actually life's realities. I'm going to show you how those two things overlap. And then I want to give you the three things that God does to change your heart. Now, the biblical categories. Well, there are, in, in the Old Testament, uh, that we know as the Old Testament, um, we, there are two basic categories that if you don't understand these two basic categories, uh, you'll really have a tough time grasping and understanding the full message of the Bible. I'm just going to give them to you, and I'm going to explain them to you. The first one you're probably very familiar with uh, is uh, the category of Exodus, and the second one you may not be as familiar with, and it's the category of exiles, Exodus and exile. Now, we, we know Exodus because that's the story of Moses and the Pharaoh, that's the story of the slaves and the oppressors, that's the story of the ten plagues, that's the story of God's rescue, that's the story of Passover, uh, that's the story of how God rescues his people, and, and we use that in the church, and we say that's actually a picture of God's salvation, and, and you know, you've, we make movies about this. Now, I've got um, two different movie pictures here. Uh, that's going to come up on the screen. Now, some of you who are older, you're going to know what this one is, right? And some of you that are younger, you're going to know what this one is, and vice versa, you're not going to know, who is that? This is Moses, <laughs> uh, if you're young, and this is also Moses if you're older, uh, the prince of Egypt. We, we make movies about it because it tells such a powerful story. Uh, the, the Exodus is about being removed from a place. And that's a place that's causing you harm and pain. So you were slaves and now you're free. What I love about Exodus is, and the Exodus story and the Exodus category is that it's very black and white. We know who the good guys are, we know who the bad guys are, and we know what God does when we're in trouble like that. What God does is God comes and God rescues us, and we're so grateful for that. And that's one of the narratives that weaves its way all the way through Scripture, all the way to Jesus, is that God rescues us when we're in trouble. It's beautiful. 
The other category uh, of exile, it's a different experience. It's not about being removed from a place. Exile is about a place being removed from you. And in the Exodus, you're removed from a place that was hurting you. But in exile, you're being removed, a place is being removed from you that you loved and where you belonged. And it's just a lot murkier. Uh, in, in the exile, it's God's people and people who come in and invade, and then they're carted off to captivity. And so there's all this loss. If you're struggling to say, well, I don't know, what do you mean by exile? I don't know what you mean. Uh, the, the, probably the most famous story of exile in the Old Testament is in the book of Daniel. It's Daniel and the lion's den. And this is a story of the Babylonians. They came and they took the brightest and best of the people of Israel, the young men, and they carted them off to Babylon. That's what they did. They, they took them in exile. And you probably know Daniel and the lion's den, and you know his three companions by the popular name, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But you probably don't even know, or if you haven't read the story in a long time, or if you've never read the story, you probably don't know those weren't actually their given names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Ahazariah. And if you grew up Jewish, you were named something, and your name meant something. So Hananiah, his name meant God has been gracious, and Mishael meant who is what God is. In other words, no one is. And then Hazariah, his name meant God will help. And so because exile is the process of being removed from a place where you belong and where you know who you are and what you are and how you fit into the narrative of life, the, the, the captors, they took them and they renamed them. And they, they stole their identity from them. I want you to hear this in Daniel chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2 about this. It's, there's a phrase in here that describes, I think, perfectly what exile feels like when we go through exile. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These, here's the phrase, he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. And so they took these, they, they, they were removed from a place and they were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was the names they were given. And so instead of Hananiah, whose name means God has been gracious, he was given the name Shadrach, which means the sun commands, because they worship the sun. And Mishael, whose name means who is what God is, nobody, was given the name who is what the earth is, because they worship the earth. And Hazariah, whose name means God will help, was given the name Abednego, which means servant of the fire. They were like the original earth, wind, and fire, if you're just keeping track. In exile, your name and your identity are carried off from you and removed from you, and you don't know who you are anymore. And here's what, here's what makes exile so murky and so difficult is that it's often due to our own failures. We get ourselves in these places. Not always, but often. Did you hear that in Ezekiel, the latter part there of that passage? It was your evil ways and your deeds. And so it's a lot murkier in, in exile. And, and why is this bad stuff happening to me? Now, the mess that you're in may be all you. The mess that you're in may be all due to someone else. Whatever it is, you're still in a mess and you don't know what to do. And you just had the place that you counted on as home and identity removed from you. So 
when Exodus happens, there's joy and there's celebration and it's, and it's clear. But when exile happens, there's struggle and there's doubt and it's muddy. Many of the psalms were written out of exile, and one of the psalms, I, I promise you probably never heard um, a passage uh, of Scripture preached out of Psalm 137, especially the latter part of Psalm 137. You can read it for yourself later today, not right now. But here's, here's the emotion of what it feels like to be in exile. They, they, this was written while in Babylon there. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion, that's Jerusalem, our home. We remembered home. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. In other words, they they mocked them and the songs that they sang. And they said, sing us one of the songs of home, of Zion. But then they said, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? It's like... We don't even know who we are. Have you ever felt this way? Maybe you've gotten a diagnosis. Or somebody leaves. Or you lose a job. Or maybe for the first time you actually have to face down your failures. The, the place that is home is removed from you, and then, then, then maybe you come into church, and, and we're singing songs like we sang this morning, and, and you get this sense, this like, sing those songs, and, and what wells up in you is from Psalm 137, and you, you say, maybe you don't say it this way, maybe it's unspoken, but you say, well, how can I sing the songs of the Lord when I'm going through what I'm going through right now? I don't even know how to do that. Because I've lost home and myself, and I'm not, sure, I'm not sure where I am. So there are these biblical categories of exodus and exile, and, and those are life's realities. Here's what I'm trying to help you see, is that the Bible's categories are always life's realities. And I want to give you the hope this morning that God will always speak to you about your life and its actual realities through his word. Now, here's, here's, here's what happens when you're, here's what happens when Exodus happens to you. God does something for you, and that does something in you. It's why, it's why we use it as this metaphor for salvation. It's why you and I need to be saved, is because sin makes us power, powerless, and it holds us captive, and, and we're a slave to sin, the apostle Paul says. And the imagery is that we're in change. We're stuck. No one can rescue us. We cannot rescue ourselves. And then God comes and rescues us. And so Exodus, it's a statement about God. God is so powerful. He rescued me. Next Sunday, we're going to baptize people, and you're going to hear stories of people who they, they'll say in, in their own words, God has been so powerful, and he's rescued me. But exile, it's when something happens to us, and when something happens to us, that does something in us too, but it usually feels like confusion and grief and bewilderment and questioning, and we ask things like, why is life suddenly against me, and what do I do now? And that statement about God's power becomes a question, well, where is the powerful God now? And if you're in the place where you're asking that, or you've been in the place where you're asking that, that's, that's when you're in exile. That's life's reality. 
And, and, and in, in my opinion, the biggest challenge of exile is that it makes us question God. Because when we're, 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 we're being set free from something we're powerless over, when it's exodus, you know, God rescues the powerless, but sometimes our exile is self-imposed or the result of someone else's choices. And then we start asking the question, and it sneaks down into the inner chambers of our heart, and we start to ask questions like, is God the same? Is God there? And doubt and fear and anxiety can grow during exile. But I've, I've got... I've got good news. This is not a message of bad news. This is a message of good news. Because what you and I need to know when we're in exile, when we're in a world that feels like it's hating us and we don't know what to do and we've lost our place, we need to be reminded again what God is like. The character of God is important for us to understand. I'm going to give you five minutes here on the character of God, and I I want you to hear this and I promise you, if you, you can chew on this for about a year, and I promise if you'll take this and own this, this will change your life from the inside out. The writer to Hebrews, when he talks about the, the, the character of God, says that um, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. In other words, he's repeating what the prophet Malachi says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. I'm the same. And so when we're talking about the character of God, what we're saying is we're, we're talking about what God is and not what God does because God does things because he is things. It's not, it doesn't work the other way around. It's not that he is because he does. No, in other words, it's not that God, because God does good, that doesn't then make him good. It's because God is good that he does good. Are you tracking with me? Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because when you and I are in exile, what, again, what seeps into the inner chambers of the heart is we begin to question the goodness and the grace of God, and we start to think that maybe the goodness and grace of God is what God does, not who he is. And because you and I are not experiencing good in the present moment, we have a tendency to reinterpret God in light of our experience. Now, this is why it's important to know the character and grace of God. And you've been wondering why I'm wearing a tool belt. And you're like, does he not know he's wearing a tool belt? Does someone, can someone please tell him? We have a tendency to think that God's goodness and graciousness are, are tools. Now, anybody who is you know, kind of handy or you work in one of the trades, you know that you don't always use the same tool. You take a tool out of your tool belt and then you use it and then you put it back in your tool belt and you don't always use the same tool over and over again. And, and because that doubt has creeped into our heart because of our life circumstances, and we've been removed from the place where we know who we are and we know who God is, 
we start to think maybe, maybe, you know, maybe God's gracious. You know, in the, in the New Testament, we think, you know, God's full of grace, but he's maybe not full of grace in the Old Testament. And that's not true, by the way. But we think that's what's, uh, what's being painted, the picture that's being painted for us. And so we think, well, well that's it. So then it's just a tool that God pulls out when he wants to do it. And, and maybe he's not pulling it out in my life because I've screwed up. And, and God was gracious to me when I was a slave and he set me free from sin. But will God be gracious to me when I screw up or when life has screwed up around me? Now, God, remember, God is, and that's why he does what he does. His character determines how he uses his tools, not the other way around. So I, I, want you to, I want you to hear here in Ezekiel the three things that God does to change your heart. And this is a promise from God's Spirit to people. Just notice again the context. Two people who are currently going through exile. They don't know where they are. They don't know what's happening. They don't know what's going to come next. They've got all kinds of questions. And God's promises always come from God's character. Because if you notice the trajectory of the, of the text in Ezekiel chapter 36, he said, uh, God says, I'm going to take your, with my spirit, I'm going to take and I'm going to remove from you your impurities and your idols. The way you've used to operate in the world. And then I'm going to take out your heart of stone. See, you and I, we have impurities and we have idols. And then, and then we, we develop a heart of stone. And then, then we get off the path. He says, and I'm going to move you to be on my path. And the trajectory of our life is a mess because We've bought into the dirt and hurt cycle, and it affects our heart. Our heart goes cold and unresponsive, and then we go haywire. Now, you need to understand that the the majority of the Old Testament actually was written um, during the exile. The ministry of Jesus was during an exilic experience of God's people. They were occupied by oppressors. So what you need to interpret from that and understand from that is that God's best happens during our worst. And in the middle of your worst, God's heart comes out for you. Because what God is does not change based on what we have done or left undone. Do you hear that? Because what God is does not change based on what we have done or left undone. So you and I need to hold on to these three promises that God says he's going to do for us to change our heart. Number one is in verse 25. God promises that he's going to clean us. I'm going to sprinkle clean water on you, which is a, a way of saying that I'm going, to, I'm going to ceremonially cleanse you. It's what's necessary for you to be clean. He says, I'm going to take out your impurities. Um, that, that's, your impurities are, are, are the ways uh, that you have been defiled. They're the ways that you have defiled. It, it's the scars that you have, that you've both received and given. The emotional, mental, physical, spiritual angst that's in you. The impurities that you've, you've just latched onto as a way to get through. And then he says, I'm going to remove that from you, and I'm going to remove idols. Idols are, are fake gods. It's a it's, uh, Tim Keller says it's a, when we take a good thing and we try to turn it into an ultimate thing and we put pressure on it to do for us what only God can do for us. So we take money or we take family or we take approval or we take um, success and we put this pressure on it to satisfy us and, and act like God and give us what it can never give us. And those impurities and those idols, that's, 
that's dirt. It's like dirt on the soul. And listen, the question when you have dirt on the soul is how are you going to clean yourself from this? How are you going to remove from your heart and your mind and your thought patterns and, and what you think about when you wake up in the morning and what you think about when you put your head on the pillow at night? How, how are you going to remove that from you? How, how do you become clean? Now, most of us, when, when we're in that situation, we, we think in terms of replacement. And so, so we play this moral game in our heads and in our minds and hearts. And, and we say, well, okay, so if I, if I, if I was wrong for, for this period of time, then if I'm good for this period of time, then it will replace the bad. We're, we're kind of like, you know, you ate all the cookies in the cookie jar, and then you realize you got to the last cookie, and you're like, uh-oh, someone's going to find out I ate all the cookies. And so you go bake a batch of cookies, and you put them back. Here's the problem with that, is that does not get us clean on the inside. And so, uh, so God says, I, I, with God's spirit, I'm, I will clean you from that. I, now notice that God's personally involved. God doesn't put a system in place or a process in place um, or a machine in place. God himself is personally involved in your cleansing. When, when our kids were little and when they would get dirty, um, when we would have to bathe them. I mean, I don't know if someone would have had a machine if I would have bought the machine to put my kids, because it's, you know, it's exhausting when your kids are little and you got three little kids, you know, and they're all dirty. But when, when they were needing to be cleaned, Andrea and I were personally involved in their cleaning. And, and that's what you have to do. You have to let yourself be clean. You have to recognize, yeah, I've latched on to things that are impure. Yeah, I've created idols out of things that are not God. And, and you have to do what Peter did when Jesus came to the disciples and he washed their feet. And Peter's like, oh, no, Lord, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus said, well, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. You have, you have to have this Peter's response, which was, okay, well, then if that's the case, then wash all of me. You have to have that heart. You have to have, you have that response. Okay, well then, God, I don't know how to make myself clean, but wash all of me. So God will clean you, and then God will heal you. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Think about it. How, how do you get a heart of stone? I think there's kind of a continuum for a heart of stone. On, on one side, it would be, you know, you're stubborn and you're proud, and you're just going to do what you're going to do. And on the other continuum, it, you have a heart of stone because you're numb and you're paralyzed and you're frozen. Now, the, the net result is exactly the same. You have a heart, when you have a heart of stone, it's unresponsive and it's closed and it's cut off and it's dead. <laughs> Did you know that the Egyptians, when someone would die, they would, uh, they would take the heart and they would remove the heart because they thought that the heart would betray them in death and they would put in place of the heart a heart of stone. That's a great picture for what we do. We're like, I don't know. I think, I think my heart might replace me. So we either get stubborn and proud or we just paralyze and go numb. That's us. I read a story this week about a guy by the name of Dan Halleck. Dan Halleck was one of six kids and he, he says he remembers the day that his uh, dad got up and left his mom and six kids for another woman. He remembers his dad saying to his mom uh, when she said, you know, well, how am I, what am I going to do with your kids? His dad said, well, you'll figure it out. Walked out the door. Uh, as a result of that, Dan and all of his siblings uh, just went off the rails in every possible way. 
Um, they did everything they could to fill the void that was created by their dad's decision. And I mean, without, in the language we've been using today, this was an ex- exile experience for them. It's just lost. It was removed. Normal was removed from them. Several times, uh, Dan, in multiple ways, tried to just live a hard, fast life, uh, just really to be numb. I mean, he just didn't, didn't want to feel anything and, and tried in multiple ways to actually end his own life and was unsuccessful. And, and 26 later, years later, someone said to him, you know, you need, you need to find your dad and you need, to, you need to find him and tell him that you love him. And he thought, my friend, he said, what, are you, what you're nuts? Why would I do that? Long story short, Dan found his father and he was supposed to meet him and he, he didn't show up there where he was supposed to meet him and it was at a beach and he saw this man who had a kind of a familiar gait and he went over to him and he realized... And he looked in his eyes and he saw the torment that was in his dad's heart and soul. Embraced his dad. And they reconciled. Found the story from his dad. His dad said, you know, the same thing had happened to him. And he'd been all of his life running from the difficulty and pain. That was his easy out button for the difficulties of his life. And, and, and Dan had a, a complete change of his... What, what happened for Dan? He had a heart of stone removed. And he had a heart of flesh put in. And when you have a heart of stone, it sees God's doing a miracle of healing your heart, transforming it from a heart of stone. For all intents and purposes, your heart is dead. It's dead to life. It's dead to purpose. It's dead to yourself. It's dead to God. And what you need is what Christianity offers, which is a resurrection, right? You need something new put in that you can't put in yourself. And so what do you have to do? You just have to say yes to it. And then the last thing that Ezekiel tells us that God will put his spirit in us and move us to follow his decrees and be careful to keep his laws. Why? Why? Because he's cleaned us. He's been personally involved. He's done a resurrection miracle in our heart and he's given us a heart that beats again with life and with purpose and with an understanding of who we are and who God is. And then, he says, then then, then my spirit will be in you and I'll move you to take the path that's going to bring you forward to life. And so what you and I have to do is we simply have to do that. Well, when you came in, you received the elements of communion. And I want to invite you to take those out. Now, for those of you who've been around with us for a little bit, you'll notice that this is a bit different. And I'm going to guide you through this so that there's not giant spillage everywhere. If you'll take the bottom and, and the, there's the, the wafer there and you'll pull the top off and take that wafer out. And then... You can turn that right side up and open the top for that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples in the Passover meal, remembering the Exodus. And in that meal, He took bread and he said, this bread represents my body that's broken for you. So would you take and break this bread and remember that Christ's body was broken for you? Would you take and eat this and be thankful? And then in the same way, he took a cup that they had and he lifted it up and he said this cup represents my blood which is a new covenant that I'm making with you for the forgiveness of sins 
would you take and drink this and be grateful that Christ died for you? I invite you to stand with me if you would. Pray with me as we go. Lord, thank you that you are the same yesterday. So your graciousness to people who were as slaves in Egypt is the same grace for us today. Your graciousness that was there for people in the exile who in, in many ways had created their own mess. Your grace, your willingness to intervene and change their circumstance is the same grace that's available to us. So thank you that you're the same yesterday and today and forever. And so God, put in us the understanding that in a week, in a month, in a year, when we're going through something and we're like, well, I'm not sure. Are you good? Are you gracious? That's who you are. You're good and you're gracious and you sacrifice yourself for us out of love. And you died to give us new life and rose again. So you have all power. God, settle our hearts and our minds. Heal the the pain that we have inside from this truth, this reality. We ask this in your name and all God's people said.